0: So, let me ask you this question to think about for today. When you think of a church, the question I have for you today is, what's the point? Or as one author once wrote this book, Philip Yancey, he said, church, why bother? Why does it matter that there's this thing called church? Why should we be involved in it? What's the point of it? I remember some of my earliest memories of church is uh, my grandparents who lived on this uh, dairy farm in northern Minnesota. I remember going to their small country church. It was a Lutheran church. And I still remember walking in and the sound of these old wooden floorboards and wooden pews sitting uh, in a place that probably sat. Well, my earliest memories, it felt big, but it's probably 50 or 60 people who could fit inside of this old church and I remember walking up those stairs in and I I remember this I hated Sunday mornings (laughs) I just remember that like oh I have to go to church today and we go in there and they'd have the little sign on the side uh, when you got inside and it showed you the hymns that you would sing the numbers of the hymns that you had to sing for that week and as a kid you'd go in and like how many seriously how many songs are we doing today and then you wonder, are we? And you'd open it up and like, are we singing this whole thing? This is long. And, and every time they would just sing one st- or stanza or whatever they called, and it was over. You're like, oh, thank you. We didn't have to. You didn't have to get. And no one. How many of you went to a church where you ever got to the fourth verse? No one ever got to the fourth verse, right? There's like a fourth. One. Oh, okay. Some of you did. Church is not over until we do this fourth one. <laughs> Oh, man, I I just, that was my earliest memories, and the smell, I can still smell it. Afterwards, you'd have to go back through this door that went into the back to the fellowship hall with some old linoleum that was probably put there in 1928, and the smell of watered down church Kool-Aid. I always, one of the things I had a problem with church is that they never made real strength Kool-Aid. They tricked you. They're like, I got Kool-Aid. This is awesome. But it was just water. It was red water. That's all it was. And, and I always thought, if you put sugar in this stuff, we would come. We would want to be here. <laughs> and that's kind of my, my earliest memories of it. Uh, I, another thing I remember is we were living um, in Northern California on a, on a, a military base, and... I think the chaplain, so there was two services. There's a Protestant service on base, and then there was a Catholic service on base. I think now there's a lot more options, but at the time, you either chose to be Catholic or Protestant. And so we went to the Protestant service, and, and the chaplain was, I think he was Baptist. And I remember when he got transferred, and the next week we had a new chaplain, and we became Lutheran, because that's, that's who he was. And, and I remember that. And, and what I remember about the, the Protestant Or or the Baptist preacher, I do remember one time on a Sunday morning, he brought his son up on the stage because he got caught stealing a tape at the uh, at the PX, and it was from the rock band Rat. I remember that. What a great album to steal and get caught by your pastor dad, chaplain dad, and his dad made him read a confession, an apology letter to the church. I know that's how I felt. I just like, bro, you can't get caught when you do that kind of stuff. That's how I felt. And, and I remember living on base, they always told us that whatever you do, it goes on your dad's records. That's what we thought. And so I, th- I don't know if it went on his record or not. All I know is every time the MPs chased us, we didn't get caught. He did, because he was a chaplain's son. But anyway, I remember that clearly and thinking, ooh, I hope that never happens to me. Then when we became Lutherans and, and they made me an altar boy, I had to wear this robe every once in a while and carry the candle up and light these candles because there was like four kids in the church, so we alternated. And I think it was because they wanted us to sit on the stage, because then they knew where we were. That's, That's all it was. It was like, where are those Rosenbaum kids? There they are. We're good. So that's how I, that was my experience. That was my beginning of church. So needless to say, I didn't grow up thinking like, you know what I'd love to do one day? I'd love to work in a church. That was this from my mind, and I remember talking with a friend once, I was in junior high, and we were talking about growing up, and I said, yeah, I'll probably go to church when I get older as a family, and I didn't have any reason why, except for that's just what you did. There wasn't much of a relationship, or, you know, I believed in God, but I didn't know what that meant, but that was, that was it. I said, well, I guess I'd go to church, because I get it makes you better, and my friend's like, Really? (laughs) It's like, if that makes you better, you better not ever stop going because you're in trouble. But when I think of that, what's the difference for us? So many of us look at church as it's maybe just a cultural thing. Maybe it's just something that you do because that's what you do. Or there's this one country music song where he says, I always go to church because your mom said to. Which I think is great advice, but but Why? Why? We're going to use the rest of this month, or this whole month of August, to look at why does God design the church, and why is it more than just watered-down Kool-Aid and flannel graph stories and hymns on the wall? What is this deep-rooted tradition that's been going on for thousands of years that we're a part of? Why did God design it this way, and why does it matter, or why should we bother with it? So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, the letter in 1 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to get there in a little while, and, and to kind of answer this question for us today. But first I want to start with, you, you see on the screen here, it, it, it's this, this word ecclesia or ecclesia. If you've never heard that before, you might say, okay, I have no idea what this means, but this is the word that we use for Church. In fact, it's a Greek word, and it didn't start off as a word for church, but the, the root of it, it actually uh, means a called out, so the ek is something called out of something or out of something, and then it's a called out group of people or an assembly. So it's an assembly or a group that's been called out or called to be different. We, we have this word, actually, in the Roman world was used. It was, it's a Greek term that originally the Greeks used it as it was kind of their first senate. It was a group of people who were called out to be different, and they were the ones who made laws. And then we knew uh, in the Roman times, uh, under the emperors, there was ecclesias, where these towns, there were these cities that were designed to specifically be city-states that were loyal to Caesar, So they were specifically called ecclesias, it was loyal to Caesar. In fact, there's a story in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus walks with his disciples to this town called Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar, and it was from uh, the the governor or king in that region of Philip, so he names this town after Caesar, but that town was actually considered an ecclesia, and that was a place where they went, and so that town was not a Jewish town. It was outside of Galilee, and they were specifically uh, loyal to Caesar. There was a temple to Caesar there where they worshiped and sacrificed. There was a temple to the god uh, Pan at this place. And it's interesting that this is the place where Jesus first uses the word church for himself. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he says this. I have it on the screen for you. It says, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So Jesus takes his, his disciples, he goes to this town that was called an ecclesia, a called out city state, group of people who were loyal to Caesar, and he asked them who he was, to, he said, who do people think I am? Peter makes his confession, says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, Peter, for, for God has revealed this to you, and now I, I, give, I make your name Peter, which means rock. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia. I will build my group of people who are called out to be different and to be loyal to me. So interesting that the first time we see it used in scripture, Jesus is redeeming that word and saying, I'm going to use it for my followers and my people. And then we see him use it again uh, in the context of what we think of a church, of this local gathering of people who are worshiping and loyal to him. So when we think of ecclesia, it is not a building. It was never used for a building. It was not a single location, but it was a group of people called out and called to be who were loyal to Jesus. That's how it's used. So when we think of it for this uh, series, we're thinking of this means that Jesus is doing something different with a group of people. He's calling them out for something. Now, there, is a, there are a few things. One, uh, there's what we call the big C church, or the church. That is the global collection of people who are loyal to Jesus. We look very different. We speak a lot of different languages. Uh, there's a lot of different culture in there. It's spread across the globe, still the largest religion in the world. And it's people who are loyal to Jesus. Worshiping Jesus is the church, the big church. And then there's the little church, church. What I mean by little is the small c, the local churches that spread out, and we are going to talk a little bit about that because the, little, the small c church, churches like Seacoast and all the other churches in our area, those matter too, and those are in the Bible as well, and so some people have this thought like, well, I'm a Christian, that means I'm part of the church, so there's no need to have any local connection or involvement, and throughout this series, we'll talk about why I think that that's not healthy. But start off, let's understand, what is this big C church? What is this group of Christians, or this global group, why does God do it this way? And here's a question for us uh, that we're going to answer is, what makes a group of people a church? That's what we're going to look at. What makes, so what is that? Is it just people say, yeah, we believe in Jesus? Is that it? Or what is it at the actual DNA? And so for that, we're gonna go a little deeper and I wanna look at the first letter to, uh, by Peter in the book of First Peter, chapter two. And Peter starts off and he says this. He says in, in chapter two, verse one, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all, all slander, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, so he starts off and says, "Hey, I'm calling you to be different." And this is, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, if you've if you've been invited in, now start to crave that pure word, that something that is going to grow you as it relates to your salvation. So he starts off with that. Now look at verse four. He says, coming to him as a living stone, meaning coming to Jesus as a living stone which has been rejected by his people, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. And this is referenced to multiple places in the Old Testament that talks about a cornerstone that will be laid in Israel. And it talks of the, the Messiah or God who is sending his son who will be placed there. And it's going to be this chief cornerstone. So he says, Coming to Jesus as a living stone. He's a living stone. And now look at verse five. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer the spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, notice this He calls us living stones. This is kind of interesting terminology, isn't it? Jesus is the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. He's a living stone, why but why is he calling us living stones? What does that have to do with? Now, think of in first century, Jesus speaking to his disciples. At this point, there was a temple in Jerusalem. And the temple was a place where they believed God's presence would dwell. And it's where you would go because there would be a priest there who could take your sacrifices, your offerings, and the priest would take them and offer them to God. And in the temple, the priest had access to God and could be your mediator between you and God. And so there was this house of the Lord, the temple, that was built with stones. And according to Old Testament, it was supposed to be stones that were uncut by the that they were natural stones so that no iron was used on them by this by this time of jesus it was a very beautiful temple made by herod in fact herod to build the mount he he made the temple larger and and to build this temple mount that still exists today if you've traveled to israel and you see where the dome of the rock is now it's a, a muslim shrine now but that was where the temple stood and on this temple mount herod actually cut out stones to build the foundation where we still have the western wall if you ever see the wailing wall or the prayer wall in jerusalem that's part of the western wall that herod built to create a larger foundation for the temple in fact one of those stones it's so large that one of the stones he he has laid it's still there to this day is 44 feet long one stone and uh 15 feet wide and and or high at wide and then six feet high one of those those are the dimensions either way it comes out to, they say, they estimate it to be about 300 tons. 300 tons. Could you imagine being on that building crew? <laughs> like, hey, you guys cut that stone out and go ahead and lay it down the foundation of the temple. Are you kidding me? I have no idea how they did that. That will be, everyone has all their first questions for Jesus. That's one of mine. Seriously, how did they do that? But so these stones were made up of this temple mount to make the temple interesting that Peter takes this analogy and says no you know what makes the dwelling place of God it's not these stones it's not these inanimate objects it's the living stones it's you it's people who are following him you are the living stones that notice what he says who are being built into what the house of God a spiritual house for a holy priesthood So there's something different that's happening with his followers now. It's no longer going to be about a location. It's no longer going to be about a building that was built with these stones. But you, my people, followers of Jesus, and and Peter said, those of you who are in Christ, who have tasted his kindness, are you being built up into the new temple, the living stones. It's alive, it's dynamic, and it's made up of you and of me. So what makes a group of people a church? From those verses, we see a couple things. One, it's people united around the person and work of Christ. What makes a church is people who are united around the person and work in Christ. Notice this, who is, who is he talking to? Those who've tasted the kindness of God, who are being built up and learning and craving the word of God, meaning what Jesus has done, what he has spoken, what the life he gives to us, all of that pertaining to our salvation. So people who are united, remember, are called out people, So we're called out for something. We are loyal to Jesus and we're united around the person and work of Christ. You are not a church if you're not united around the person and work of Christ. It's not the same. It's not living stones being built into a spiritual house. So the second thing is this. People who are fulfilling the mission of God. This is one thing that the church does. Notice this. We're being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood a holy priesthood. And we're going to see later on in First Peter that you are called priests. So some of you, when I ask you what's your earliest memory of church, my guess is some of you in here had to do with priests and a Catholic church or any of those kind of churches. Mine, again, it's like I remember little things about it. The idea of priests in the Old Testament was you needed someone to give you access to God. You needed someone to carry out the mission of God, and it was the professionals. It was those who were born, in, for the Jews, born into the right family. So they were born as in the priestly family, the Levites. Jesus is saying now what we find in the New Testament is you are being built in a spiritual house and a royal priesthood. So you now are the ones fulfilling this mission of God. You are the ones with direct access to God. You are the ones who carry his presence and his blessing to the world. You don't have to line up and find someone else to do it. You are now, this is your job you're invited into. You with me on it so far? So when we talk about the church, it's we're loyal, we're united around Christ, and we're fulfilling his mission. Now, when our teaching team was studying this, we are thinking about it, One of the things that we uh, wanted to address was this, that this is not a new idea. Jesus didn't say, hey, I know we have all this history called the Old Testament. Let's change things up. Let's try something different here in the New Testament. I'm gonna come up with a new plan. The the church was God's plan from the very beginning. And what we really want you to understand today is that what, what we're talking about is actually been talked about from what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. That this was God's plan from the beginning. So I want to show you a few verses that come from the Old Testament. First one is this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Notice this language. This is God speaking to Moses right before he gives them the Ten Commandments. He says this, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my, my own possession among all the people's you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So again, notice from the beginning, God says, I'm gonna make a covenant with you, Moses. And this is an agreement that he makes. But there's just a little difference in it. Notice what he says. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. What really he's saying is, I'm about to give you the instructions of what it looks like to walk in my ways. And if you choose to do that, going to be my kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I'm going to fill you and bless you with everything you need to carry out this mission. I have a plan for you. This is an important role. And notice this kingdom of priests and holy nation is exactly what Peter is addressing in First Peter. This is what we're being made into. And what we see here in this covenant is that God is making a, he's, promised to, he's promising to bless them and fill them with all they needed to carry out this mission. But even this is not the only place that happens in scripture. In fact, in Genesis chapter one, God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. I made you in my image. I'm going to bless you. And now what do I want you to do? To represent me to all the nations, to spread out my glory and, and praise to the ends of the earth. Be my people and be on mission. That's from Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter 12, This is going to be on the test at the end of August, just so you know. In Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to Abraham, who becomes the father of the nation of the Israelites. He makes a covenant with him, makes an agreement, says, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and through you all the nations will be blessed. I'm going to make a deal. I'm going to call you out to be my people, and when you are my people, I'm going to fill you with all you need to be a blessing to the ends of the earth. Then we get to Exodus. We see it again with Moses that I already showed you. I'm going to, this is the nation of Israel. Now I'm going to give you a law so you understand more of my heart and who I am. They break it. He gives to King David. Now Israel's fully established. They now have a kingdom. They have a king. And, and God makes a covenant with David and says, you, someone will always be on the throne. There's something about your holy line, your royal line that will last forever because I'm calling my people to be on mission. So this is happening over and over again, and guess how well Israel did with their covenant? They failed time and time again. If I were to ask you, does your life always represent the ways of Jesus, the heart of Jesus? If I followed you around for 24 hours, how many of you would be like, yep, that's it, follow me. Just do what I do and we're good. No, we fall short all the time. Until we're perfected and until we're in the presence of God and there's no more sin, guess what? We're going to fall short. So the Israelites fell short time and time again. They failed to fulfill what God called them to. Represent my ways. Be people who bring life, who bring justice, who bring hope, instead of take it. And they kept failing and failing. So then we find the prophets in the Old Testament. And God speaks through the prophets and says, I knew this, this is my plan from the beginning to call people for myself, but I know you'll fall short. So I'm going to make a new covenant with you one day. I'm going to make a new covenant. He says it in Ezekiel chapter 36. He says, I'm gonna put in you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I'm gonna make a covenant with you. I'm gonna do something in you. Again, in Jeremiah chapter 31, I have this for you on, on the screen. It says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In verse 32, I don't have that. It says, not like the old covenant which I made by the fathers or with your fathers, my covenant which you broke. In verse 33, he says, this covenant which I'll make, the house of Israel after those days, I will put my law within them and write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. What he's speaking to is there's a day coming when it's something is going to change. Not the structure, not the call. I'm still calling out of people, but I'm making a new deal with you. And with you, I'm going to put my law in your heart. Now, how many of you feel like you walk around with God's law in your heart? This is, what does this really mean? What what this means is that what Jesus promises us is he gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell and empower us. The new covenant, which was different, is God said, I'm going to not only come and send my Messiah to fulfill what you couldn't fulfill, that's Jesus, then I'm going to send my Spirit to literally dwell within you. My law and my Spirit are going to be in your heart. They're going to be on you. Verse 34 in Jeremiah says this, You will not teach again each to your own neighbor and each to your brother, saying, Know the Lord, for you will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and their sin I will no longer remember. God says, A new covenant I'm going to make is going to help you fulfill ultimately what I've called you to. And I'm going to put my spirit, my law within you. So the point is this. From the beginning, God has designed to call out a people, to represent him, to declare his praises, to fulfill his mission. From the very beginning. And the new covenant is just a continuation of that. It's actually the culmination of this call. Because now we fully possess everything we need to carry out that mission. Is that good news? I am so glad it's not just about every time you mess up, you have to go bring a goat to the priest to sacrifice. This new covenant is good. So let me ask this question then. Why did God design it this way? Or here's the question. Why does he have a church? Why did God design a group of people? Because anyone could know from the beginning, here's God, he's all-knowing with imperfect people. There's some flaws in this plan. Would you agree? I mean, there's flaws in this plan. Look at the person next to you and just say, you're the flaw in this plan. No, don't do that, don't do that. Some of you are way too quick to do that. When I think of why does God, why did God design it this way? Certainly there could have been, couldn't he have just chosen a group of people who said, you are going to be the sinless people. You are going to be the perfect people. And the perfect people are going to represent my name. The rest of you, I don't know what to do with you. Don't you feel like that makes more sense? If God can do anything, can't he make perfect people? but he didn't. So why did he do it this way? Why did he choose a church instead of just saying, hey, one mess up and you're done? Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to skip a few uh, for the sake of just, he gets into some Old Testament language about cornerstone, and we're going to skip that and go down to verse 9. And he says this, you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, sound familiar? A holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So again, he's basically quoting Exodus 19. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You once had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. All of this is language from Old Testament Isaiah talks about being called out of darkness into his light Hosea multiple times says you were not the people of God but now you are You were people who didn't have mercy now you are And there's a couple things we find in here first one is this He calls a church of people One of the first jobs and the main job he wants for us or the first job is this To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you or to pro- proclaim the excellencies of God Why does he call a church? One of our jobs is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us. Now, some of you might say, that sounds kind of selfish. Why would God create a people to say, your job is to proclaim how excellent I am? That sounds, from a human standpoint, that seems kind of uh, arrogant. Would you not agree? Let me just give you news. You are not the perfect creator of the universe, though. <laughs> you were not there before things existed. All things do not exist because of you. You are not excellent like God is, okay? <laughs> so when he says declare my excellencies, it's because something of his very nature is worth declaring and praising. The command throughout scripture to praise the Lord and for all the nations to praise the Lord is repeated over and over and over again. That for all the nations to know and proclaim the excellencies of God. Peter writes again in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, the divine power... Has, granted, has been granted to us in, for everything pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, God has now given us everything we need, blessed us with everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his own excellence. Something about the very nature of God is worth proclaiming. And it's God's heart that he not only received praise, but that we, pro- that we recognize his excellent ways. And proclaim this to the nation to proclaim the excellencies he wanted a group of people to do that when he created us in in his image in genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and 8 he says i want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my image and the point is this god's ways are good you with me on that god's ways are good they're life-giving they're actually for your good and for the good of others How many of you would say that our culture and our world is coming up with a better way than God's ways? That the evidence is in. Just look around. People are more united. People are experiencing peace and joy and goodness. And if we just do what's right in our own eyes, it's working, right? The answer is no, it's not. If you're confused, I don't think it's working. And God's saying, if you would just trust, if you would just enter in and trust the creator of the universe and what I offer to you, that my ways bring peace and goodness, justice to the earth. Amen. Yeah. Therefore, our good. His ways are for our good and for the good of others. The other reason he calls a group of people is this, it's to gather more gather others into the family. He starts with a group and says, now go to the ends of the earth. Fill them with my glory. In other words, my mission is that more and more would know me and walk with me. Again, why is that good? If we all lived the ways of Christ, if we all understood Jesus and allowed him to live his life through us, do you know how life-giving that is to everyone around you? God wants to invite more and more into experiencing that forgiveness, that peace, that joy of knowing him, the joy of relationships that no longer have, you don't have to prove yourself and you can freely forgive, you can freely be who you are as Christ lives through you and there's reconciliation. I I, I know my marriage exists and lasts and, and it's healthy because of Christ because we are able to mess up and give grace to each other. Because we don't have to one-up each other. We don't have to keep score. And if we kept score, I would be losing. <laughs> but in Christ, we're set free to, to accept each other in our imperfections and shortcomings and say, God's doing something new in me. He's creating something new in me. And there's reconciliation within marriages, within relationships. And it doesn't make it easy all the time. And there's bumps. And some of you walk with Jesus, and there's relationships that are still, there's, they're broken. I get it. God wants to restore. He's able to bring in his grace and mercy. And why wouldn't we want the rest of the world to know that? You know, this week I was, uh, I I did a lot of studying my undergrad through seminary, and then I did postgraduate work at Hebrew University doing religious studies. And, you know, we studied all these ancient Near Eastern religions and cultures. And so this week I was kind of reflecting back on a bunch of the ancient uh, religions. Does anyone else do that for fun? Yeah, nerd right here. I get it. And one was because, well, what makes God different? What makes a church different? And in every case you can find, the gods and goddesses of the ancient world were all not just saying praise. They hardly ever even said praise me. It was I'm going to take from you. Their people were designed to bring them food. A lot of them were there to fulfill their own fleshly desires, sexual desires of the gods and goddesses. And, and when you read all these stories and you look at them, they're trying to make sense of the world, but they're doing it from a purely human perspective. Of these gods and goddesses who you go like, oh, that looks a lot like the people I see on TV. No wonder you came up with that story. It's easy to come up with stories of gods who look like the rest of us. And I can't find any god who said, I want to call the people to myself to go expand this movement to the ends of the earth so the earth may be blessed by my goodness. None of them said, I want the earth to experience blessing because of my goodness to them poured out. None of them said, I want to fill them with all they need to succeed. None of them said that. They were all like, hey, fill me. But God says, I want the world to know me and to experience this life that I have for you. So as the worship team starts making their way back up, Today is really just to introduce this idea of the Ecclesia, the called out people. The idea that God has called us for something. And what he's called us for is for your good and for the good of the people you interact with every single day. And he's invited you to be a part of this. And yes, we're going to talk about what that means to, to, we call it the one another's. What does it mean to be a local church together and a global church we're going to talk about how we can even use our own giftedness and how God uniquely shaped you to be a part of his purpose. We see that from the very beginning in the Old Testament when they build the tabernacle. He uniquely shapes people with different gifts and passions. There were people who loved to sew, and God said, I made you like this on purpose. For me, that's just that's impossible to think that exists. But God said, "That is this is for good. And so you, God, has made with a purpose and on purpose, your passions. And so we're going to explore that as we look in these next few weeks. But today what we want to end with is just to know that this thing that God has designed, it would have been my plan. I won't even come up with this plan. It wouldn't have worked. But this is you are God's plan A. Seacoast is God's plan A. He didn't say, nothing else is working. Let's let's try a thing called a church. No, from the beginning, he says, this is how we're gonna do it. People called out to declare my excellencies and invite others into the family. That's you. So we're gonna sing one last song here. I wanna invite you to stand as we sing this last song. And let's just close our time here in prayer and and move into the song. God, we thank you so much that well, I, I thank you in particular that you somehow made me with a purpose. And you made every single person in this room and everyone listening online and everyone in the plaza, that you made them with passions and on purpose to invite us into your story. And God, some of us started as little kids in a country church. Dreading having to sing psalms and songs to you. But Lord, from the beginning, you had a bigger plan. And so Lord, let us rest in that plan today. Let us just bask in the glory of who you are and proclaim your excellencies because God, you are worthy of our praise. So we turn our hearts to you and we ask you, invite you to move through your spirit in our lives today. We thank you and give you this time.